The passage before us this morning continues the context of narrating the events associated with Elisha's ministry. So this is a story about the prophet Elisha, to be sure. It is a story conveying how Elisha grows in reputation and renown as God's prophet. God uses Elisha in a mighty way, and his fame is going to spread not only throughout the kingdom, but the kingdoms around about Israel as well. But it is also a story of God's care for a widow and her sons. God had called Elisha to be a prophet for the benefit of God's people. God had called Elisha not just to simply enjoy personal communion with God and to be an end user of God's benefits and provisions, but rather God called Elisha to be a dispenser of God's grace and to help others even as God has saved us, not just for our own benefits and enjoyments, but that we might be his servants and be a benefit and a blessing to others. As we saw two weeks ago, Elisha ministered to the kings of Judah and Israel. But God had not limited Elisha's ministry to kings, Today, we're going to see that he ministers to a widow and to her two sons, to the widow and the fatherless. So too, God calls us to minister to widows and the fatherless. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it reads, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So our theme this morning is God provides for the widow and the fatherless. As the scene opens, a widow comes to Elisha and her need. And as the scene opens, we encounter the widow, and we encounter her in her lament. She comes to pour her heart out to Elisha. Notice in verse 1, it states, now the wife of one of the sons of the, of the prophets cried to Elisha. Cried to Elisha. The text does not merely say that she came or that she spoke, but that she cried. It is a word that speaks of great lament. She came with a tale of woe, a heart filled with sorrow and grief. She came in a spirit of emotional distress. She comes bearing her soul to Elisha. So what put her in such distress? What was her lament? What was her story of woe? What was contributing to all her heartache? Well, in reality, we know very little about this woman. We're not even given her a name. And yet, we know more about her than we might readily initially realize. Notice some of the things that we do know about her. We know that she is the wife of a person in ministry. Or tells in verse 1, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. 
And uh, we have encountered the sons of the prophets before. If you remember, they're the seminary students, if you will. They are the ones that are training for ministry. They would have sat under an older and uh, more well-known prophet. He was one of the 7,000 who had not bowed his knee to Baal. He most likely had suffered some of the severe waves of persecution that had come under the auspices of Ahab and Jezebel. We know that she's now a widow, for it tells us in verse 1 that my husband is dead. My husband is dead. We don't know how he died. We don't know if his death was a result of the persecution that I just alluded to under Ahab and Jezebel, in which many, many prophets lost their lives, or perhaps the cause of his death was natural. We don't know. We don't know how long ago he died, how fresh the hurt and the pain was that she was experiencing. We do know that her husband was well acquainted with Elisha, for it tells us in verse 1, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets came to Elisha, and notice how she describes him. Your servant, my husband. He was a servant of Elisha, meaning that he sat under the ministry of Elisha and tended to his needs. He would have been a right-hand man. He would have been a helper, an encourager. He was a servant of Elijah, Elisha. Further, we know that her husband was a godly individual. For notice in verse 1 it says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And now these words, And you know that your servant feared the Lord. You know that he feared the Lord. This man was a godly individual. He was a righteous man. He was not a fraud. He was not a hypocrite. He wasn't simply pretending about being interested in spiritual matters. He was sincere. He was devout. He was godly. And we also know that this woman was in great debt. Or the end of verse 1. It says, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but... The creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Notice the contrasting word, but. But. With all that that was going for this woman, she was the wife of a man in ministry, a man who was a faithful servant to Elisha, a man who was godly. And yet... Now she is in great debt. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. She encountered debts. I submit to you, supposedly through no fault of her own. There is no reason to think that she had squandered or wasted her money away. 
She is not a woman who is living in the lap of luxury. You look at verse 2, when Elisha asked the question, what do you have in your house? She said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. It was not an exaggeration. This woman had nothing. She had no resources. There was nothing for her to sell. There was nothing for her to avail herself of paying these debts. She literally had nothing but a jar of oil. Her indebtedness is to be linked with the death of her husband, the provider. But he was not rich. He was not well-to-do. He was a son of a prophet, student. Her plight, her debt was quite understandable. And we know that this woman who had lost so much was now about to lose her last source of joy and delight, and that was her son's. It tells us at the end of verse 1, the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves, which was absolutely legal in that economy, in that era. If you had a debt, the debtor could come and have the sons of the debtor work in order to pay off the debt. As we think about this first section, the very first question I have is, are you shocked that a person who is a wife of a man in ministry, who is married to a dedicated, faithful individual, who was living a godly and righteous life, would experience such hardships and difficulty? Is that incongruous? Is, is that just outside the box, outside the pale? Do we anticipate and expect that people that are godly, involved in ministry, seeking to do what is right, are they going to encounter such difficulties and hardships? Well, she does. She does. I ask you, do we feel her pain? Can you identify with her lament? Life had not turned out at all the way she had expected. She married a godly man. They were blessed to have children. He was in the ministry. But now her husband is dead. As a result, she's got great financial need. She has already sold all that she has in order to pay her debts. She has nothing left. She literally has nothing left materially, emotionally. And I would submit to you, even spiritually, all is spent. All looks hopeless. All looks hopeless. Can we enter into her grief? Take time to ponder, reflect on passages such as these. Don't hurry over these kinds of verses. Let the situation sink in. Think about this woman's plight. And as you do, I would encourage you as 
know, prayer requests will come out this afternoon. There's a prayer sheet that comes out every Sunday, every Wednesday. As you gather together with people in prayer meeting, and you hear people's requests, you hear of loved ones that have died, you hear of people that are sick, those that have lost their jobs, those who are experiencing difficulty, struggles with their children, people who feel lonely. You take time to enter into that grief. Time to really think about the person who's offering that request. To have a spirit of compassion. To feel for that individual, if you will. Well, this woman comes with her lament and she turns to the prophet. She comes with an expectancy. She believes that she's going to be helped. We will see that this woman comes as a person of great faith. But as we enter into the next section, I want you to keep in mind that we learn some important truths here, and that is that people of faith, godly people, can find themselves in very difficult and trying circumstances. People of faith, godly people, have their spouses die. People of faith, godly people, can find themselves in financial straits. People of faith, godly people, can find their families threatened, and hardships coming upon their children. People of faith can get to a place where they have nowhere else to turn but to the Lord. This passage teaches us but people of faith can always turn to the Lord. And that's a great comfort, and that's a great help. And that's what she does. So Elisha provides help by instructing the woman as to what she should do. Elisha stands ready to help, which is different from the dealings with Jehoram that we saw two weeks ago. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? He wants to help her. He does not have the personal resources to meet her needs. He is not a man of wealth himself. He simply can't just pay the debts, or Elisha has no money either. Which is often the case that we find when people come to us. We find that our resources are not great enough to meet the needs that people bring to us, not just financially, but emotional needs, physical needs. There's really no way for us to, in our own strength, alleviate the difficulties or the problems. We are at a loss. And it's important to realize how limited we are in our own strengths and our own abilities to meet the needs of others. And it may be a source of our own sorrow and our own lament. But Elisha can and does bring the need before God. And so Elisha counsels her, and the first is to focus upon what she has as opposed to what she does not have. It says in verse 2, tell me what you have in the house. 
Time and time again in the scriptures, we find how God uses the small things of which a person has to meet great needs. Probably the most notable story is the boy with the five loaves and two fishes that God uses to feed the multitude. And in John chapter 6, verse 7, Philip said, there's a boy here who has 200 denarii uh, worth of bread. Uh, excuse me. Here is a, a, a boy here with five loaves and two fishes, but what is that among so many? Second, she used to speak, seek help from her neighbors. Verse 3, then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors. This would not have been a hardship for the neighbors, for the vessels that she is seeking are empty vessels. She's not asking oil of them. She's not asking them to contribute money. She's just asking to use their empty vessels. That's all. However, this would have been very humbling on the part of this widow to go and express her need and want to borrow these empty vessels. And one wonders, wasn't there another way that this need could have been met? Wasn't there an alternative? Wasn't there another way and perhaps even, wasn't there a better way? Is this the only way? Nevertheless, the widow accepts the manner in which God is going to provide for her. And I submit to you that so too we must accept the manner in which God chooses to provide for us in our own lives. Whether it's through work or whether it's through gifts or whatever the way it is that God provides for our daily needs whether that's disability insurance, whatever it is, we need to accept it and acknowledge it as God's goodness and grace. We also need to learn the approach that this woman makes. For she follows the verse of scripture that we use as our call of worship this morning, and that is she simply casted her care upon the Lord through the person of Elisha. She didn't tell Elisha what to do. She simply told him of her need. And I can't stress to you enough how repeatedly the Word of God teaches us not to instruct or teach God what to do. We don't have to go and tell God how to meet our need. So often it is, people want to make it specific. Pray that I get this job that I've applied for. Pray that this will happen. And not only that, not only do they pray specifically, but they want others to pray specifically also. Pray this way. When in reality, what we should do is simply bring our need before the Lord and say, Lord, here's my need. If it's a job, if whatever it is, the way that you are going to provide is good and right and, and a blessing. Trust and confidence in God. Certainly, certainly, God is going to supply in a totally unanticipated way. I don't know what she expected when she came to Elisha, but 
I think it's a given that she wasn't expecting that she was going to be told to go get vessels and that the oil that she had would never run out. Third, Elisha encourages her to take diligence in her task. He says in verse 3, then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors. And now these words, empty vessels and not too few. It was an encouragement to believe big, to trust God and not limit in what he could do. Then in the privacy of her own home, she is to fill all the vessels from one vessel containing oil, verse 4. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. We find the widow follows Elisha's instructions. Tells us in verse 5, she went from him. And then it simply jumps to and shut the door behind herself. The account does not relate how she went door to door and collected the vessels, but obviously she did that. Obviously it takes place. But it cuts to the chase, and it teaches us that which is most important for us to understand, and that is that she shut the door behind herself and her sons. This was God's instruction. She and her sons had the sole privilege of actually witnessing what was about to take place. And while Jesus did public miracles, there were a number of occasions when he put everybody outside and only a few got to see or witness the actual miracle taking place. And so it is here. So it is here. Now, it's not a great secret. Others certainly would come to hear of it. She's going to sell the oil. People are going to wonder where that came from. She's going to be returning the vessels. It wasn't a secret. But it was a unique privilege that God was going to bestow upon her and her sons to see this miracle of oil being poured out constantly and not running dry until the very last vessel is filled. And so we, we find that this hardship and this difficulty that she was encountering, as awful as it was, was ultimately going to be the source of great blessing and great privilege. Through her hardship, she is going to come to experience something that nobody else does. Nobody else does. Through all that she is going through, she is going to see God work in a way that others don't see him work. <clears throat> and that should be a great comfort to us in our affliction and hardship, for oftentimes it is that in that affliction, that hardship, we see God work. And when he does, it's incredible, the experience and the blessing and the hope and the encouragement that it brings to our lives. <clears throat> well, the vessels are filled Verse 6, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. A number of commentators at this point find fault with this widow for having not gathered more jars. They say that her faith was weak or small. One of the 
reasons for that is there are other similar yet different accounts of various events in which people are encouraged to do something and they stop short of doing all that they should and so rebuked. But that's not in our passage. That is not here. There is no rebuke in this passage. There is no statement that she should have done more or she should have gathered more. In fact, we find out that this woman has all that she needs. She's able to pay her debts. She's able to live off the rest. This is not a story about greed. This is not a story of gather every vessel under the sun so that you can now become the wealthiest person on the face of the earth. This is a story of God's provision, of God's sufficiency, of God giving her what she needs, and he's done just that. She's done what she is told, and God provides for her. Now the widow tells Elisha all that took place, verse 7. She came and told the man of God, she came and told the man of God. In verse 7, Elisha is referred to as a man of God. That is, he's God's man. As a man of God, Elisha speaks for God. He is God's mouthpiece. He's a prophet. But more than that, Elisha represents the very person of God in all things. What was accomplished was, in fact, an act of God. This wasn't something that Elisha himself did in providing this oil. He just merely provided the instruction. It was God who provided the oil. He was God's spokesman. He was God's representative. But this statement supplies us with an appropriate and important understanding of the particular way in which this narrative fits into the larger narratives. There are a series of miracles that are going to be taking place that we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. But here we find that Elisha is perceived in a little different way. This glorious title, man of God, man of God. This unique relationship that Elisha enjoys to God. The reputation and renown of Elisha is increasing throughout the larger narrative. Man of God is a wonderful title. I would submit to you so is the title Christian. As Christians, we are to represent Christ. We're to speak for Christ. We're to tell others about Christ. But more than that, we are to be the image bearers of Christ. We are to be like Christ. We are to be the representative of Christ. We are to be the example of Christ. We are to be living out the teachings of Christ so that people can see Christ in us. This woman could see God in Elisha. This Elisha who cared for this widow and her sons 
was ultimately a representative of God who cared for the widow and her sons. So too, our acts of good deeds and of righteousness ought to reflect the person and character of Jesus himself. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are to be doing his bidding. And as such, we present Christ to a fallen world in all of his goodness and in all of his grace. Elisha is God's instrument. Look at the outcome of the story. Elisha gives her final instructions, verse 7. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Go. She was to get on with life. Sell the oil, verse 7. The oil was not to be hoarded, nor was it to be an object of worship. She was not to keep a measure and put it on a mantle and pray to it. She was not to, to venerate it. She was not to hold it in holy regard. She was not to sanctify it. She was to sell it. It was a means to an end. It was not a prop. It was a means to an end. And I say that because so often, so often in Israel, that the instrument that God uses to deliver his people ultimately comes to be a, a thing of worship, such as the serpent that was raised in the wilderness where, where they looked to the serpent and lived. They kept that serpent and eventually began to worship that serpent. We can worship the means rather than worship the God. This oil was to be sold. And in selling the oil, she was to pay her debts. She was to fulfill her responsibilities and duties. She owed the money. The creditors deserved to get paid, and she was to pay them. And then lastly, she was to live and enjoy her family. Notice it says at the end of this, verse 7, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Well, there was more than enough money, more than enough. You could pay off all her debts, which at one point seemed absolutely impossible. And she and her sons could live on the rest. They could stay together as a family. She could have them by her side. Here was God's goodness and grace, not only for the moment, but for the time to come. I don't think that when it says live on the rest, that this woman and her sons never had to work again in a day in their life. I don't think it was such a treasure trove of money that now they can just put their feet up and retire and the rest of their life they're living off of what was the proceeds of this oil. But rather, but rather, this was the oil that they needed to not only pay their debts, but to get their feet back on the ground. God would continue to provide. God would continue to watch over. God would continue to care. But I submit to you that this woman never was provided for in this way again. This was once and done. 
This was how God worked in this particular occasion, in this particular circumstance. So here's some takeaways from this passage. The first, God's miraculous provision of oil is not normative of how God usually works. We are not to expect that God is going to meet our needs by us gathering together our oil and going and looking for vessels. It's not normative today, but let me point out it was not normative in that day either. This is one account in all the scriptures about one widow and how God provided for her. It wasn't normative. It wasn't common. It was the exception. But the point is that God could provide. The point is that what is not the exception is God's provision. That is ordinary. And that is common. God watches over his people. He gives us our daily bread. All of us today have experienced and known God's provision for us. You have a house to live in. You have a house that is furnished. You have food in a pantry. We are going to go to a fellowship meal and everyone can eat. God has richly blessed us. The question is, do we see that? Do we recognize that? Do we understand that God's provision and care for us in the ordinary way is just as dramatic, if you will, as if he provided the oil? It is still by God's hand and grace. And do you understand how good and gracious God is that he provides for us on this daily, regular basis without all the suffering and hardship that this woman went through? That we don't have the anguish of not knowing how in the world we can pay for our debts, not knowing how we can feed our children fearing that they're going to be taken away from us. We are to see the grace and goodness and the abundant mercy of our God. Learn from the extreme and take joy in what God is doing in our lives today, how he has so blessed us. Don't long for the hardship of the oil. Be glad for the ease of God's provision, even when we don't deserve it. And never think that we deserve it. Never think it's because we are in ministry. It's because we have been faithful. It's because we have been loyal. Here was a woman who we would think would never experience these things. 
But it's not a reward of faithfulness that God provides. It's his goodness and it's his mercy. It's his compassion and it's grace. And he provides for us even when we don't deserve it. Even when we have been unfaithful. Even when we have been untrue. We should praise God all the more that we do not experience such grief and hardships as the widow did. So let's take time today, sometime today, tonight before you go to bed. And I just want us all to reflect on the goodness of God, all the things that we enjoy, the blessings that we have, the material things, and not focus on what we don't have, but focus on what we do have. Think about God's answers to prayer. Think about our worries in the past and how God has provided for us. That we might be people of greater faith, less anxiety, less worry. Learn the lessons from not only the experience of the widow, that God can provide in ways that are totally unthinkable and unimaginable to us, but learn from our own experiences that that God has provided for me up until this day. And the God who has watched over and cared for me all these years of my life will continue to watch over and care for me all the years to come. For he's faithful. He's true. He can be trusted. He can be relied upon. Realize God's people lose loved ones. God's people encounter debts. God's people know hardship, but God remains faithful. He has not forgotten us. He has not abandoned us. In times of hardship, he brings us to a place of understanding his grace and his goodness even more. Let us learn apart from those hardships. God really does care for us. And there is no need that is too great for our God to meet. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to see that you are a God who provides. And you provide in many, many different ways. Sometimes through gifts, sometimes through work, sometimes through disability insurance, sometimes through things that we sell. But ultimately, Lord, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Lord, keep us from anxiety. Keep us from from worry. And Lord, for those times in which we legitimately lament, when life is hard, when we have lost loved ones, when we have been faithful, when we have served you, 
And we have certain expectations, and those expectations aren't realized. And we've known sorrow, and it appears that it's sorrow upon sorrow. And like this woman, maybe even our children might be taken from us. Oh God, help us to do as this woman did, turn to you. And not be bitter. And not to be faithless. But to believe that you are a God of compassion. You are a God of mercy. You are a God who hears. You are a God that provides. And may we not dictate to you how you provide. But help us simply to cast our care upon you. Lord, you know the needs of each and every one here this morning. I don't know what people are going through. But I pray that you would reassure them if they know you as their Lord and Savior, that you will watch over them, you will protect them, you will be compassionate to them. Lord, help us as a people of God to be concerned for our brothers and sisters in Christ in their time of need. And may we be like an Elisha, may we have compassion. And may we want to help, and may we want to be an encouragement. But Lord, bring glory to your name as we recognize your goodness and grace to us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.